0: I have Dr. Vorderbruggen on the show. He's a very interesting person. He believes that you should be able to forage uh, stuff that you have in your backyard. Dr.
1: Vorderbruggen, how are you? I'm doing all right. It's a little hot here in Houston, but for the most part, that's what summer is like down here. Yeah, I can imagine.
0: Tell us about your PhD, your credentials, and how does that all work into
1: what you're doing now with the foraging? Oh, wow, thanks. Yeah, so... Uh... From the education side, I have a master's in medicinal chemistry and a PhD in physical organic chemistry. So I don't make the molecules. I figure out which molecules are necessary to accomplish a particular task. The original plan was to go into pharmaceuticals, but I ended up here in Houston and the oil industry threw a ton of money at me. And so I spent 18 years developing environmentally friendly replacements for traditionally less friendly oil field chemicals using my knowledge of natural products. My first patent was using cinnamon as a corrosion inhibitor. My last patent in the oil industry was mimicking oyster shells to coat sand to prevent the dust from coming off and causing silicosis. So I've always been kind of, I uh, jokingly referred to myself as a chemist raised by wolves. So it's all about what nature and how to access nature and more recently, the medicinal properties of natural plants. Okay. Why is foraging so important to you? And why should people even care about this stuff? Because that is how we evolved. If you think about humans, we are an ancient designed body trying to live in a modern world. And Quite frankly, a lot of the ease of this modern world is causing all sorts of health problems in us. Uh, You can trace back everything from the mental deterioration to heart disease and diabetes and all these sort of things, just to the fact that we aren't Doing what we evolved to do one of them walking around outside gathering food
0: Okay, I know know the accessibility of food and this very easy life kind of leads to uh, Diabetes uh, being overweight heart disease and all this other stuff, but how is
1: foraging and uh, food security related? ah, that's a good question so Let's 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 take it in several parts first off if you are trying to survive purely by foraging you're gonna run into a lot of problems but that being said, just because there's not enough wild stuff for everyone on the planet right now, what I usually try and do is get people to start with uh, replacing about 10% of their diet with wild foraged foods. Most people can do that. They have access to you know, their property, friends' property, things like that, where they can get stuff and just start replacing you know, a salad every day or something like that. The key food security when it really comes down to it though is calories the wild plants and mushrooms are great sources of vitamins and minerals and antioxidants and medicinal compounds it's calories where you come into problems and for that what I try and get people to learn are the seeds the nuts and the tubers and their location that will supply them with calories and from there, they start realizing, yeah, this is awesome. We can start gathering these seeds. And I've let loose a kind of an army of uh, Johnny apple seeds. But in this case, it's Johnny lamb's quarter seeds and Johnny canna lily out there kind of guerrilla gardening their locations with calorie producing wild plants. And through that is where they start getting more of their security.
0: On your website, I did notice there's a lot of iconography or motifs uh, pointing to the medicine man. In your words, who is the medicine man
1: and what does it mean to you? So the medicine man, they are the people who are responsible for the health of the tribe through not just plants and mushrooms, but even counseling and guidance, both mental and physical help for the tribe is what it boils down to. And that is what I've devoted my life to. In your opinion, is there a relationship between health,
0: nutrition, and uh, medicine? And is that kind of what you're aiming at when you use this kind of imagery?
1: Yes. In fact, uh, you might have heard the saying, let food be thy medicine. I take it one step farther and let gathering food be thy medicine. The act of walking around outside, bending, twisting, stretching, occasionally running really fast, things like that. Uh, using your body the way it was designed to be used. There are some accounts that Neolithic
0: farmers were considerably less, less, way less healthy than hunter gatherer communities. And uh, in fact, uh, a stable food supply at the end came at some, uh, with some consequences from their labor intensive lifestyles, namely vitamin, de- uh, vitamin deficiencies, spinal cord, uh, spinal deformations, and dental pathologies.
1: What's your opinion on that? Most 100% true. Uh, if you ask me, I think we really made a mistake moving over into agriculture. Uh, I do subscribe to the theory. A lot of the reason agriculture was started was so that we had a steady source of the ingredients needed for beer. Before that, they were mainly gathering, you know, the a little bit here and there. A lot of it, though, was surviving on the animal products but that being said even if you're eating nose to tail there are places where the plants come in you know useful too for the nutrition but yeah most definitely the the agriculture it allowed feeding of the masses but it allowed creating of the masses too and so there was definitely trade offs there like you said all the different health issues that came out of it what do you think about animal products? Do you think it
0: should be part of someone's diet? Or do you think that eliminating uh, food, uh, animal products
1: is part of a healthier diet? If you look at your teeth, you'll see the front teeth are designed for cutting and tearing. And if you look at our bodies and the biochemistry involved, from those, I believe we are designed to hunt and to eat. Uh, a key feature of this is the fact for the most part we are hairless and we are designed to run if you look at the endurance capabilities of the human uh it quickly points out that we are endurance hunters we are designed to just keep going and going and going and going and wear down our prey if we were just after vegetables and fruit we wouldn't have those particular features
0: very interesting now, is a diet in processed foods kind of the new abnormal for Americans?
1: Yes. Uh, when you say new abnormal, I'm going to go, you know, within the last hundred years or so. But, yeah, I mean, basically sitting and eating are the two big health issues that face a lot of people nowadays. They don't move around enough and they don't eat the foods that they evolved eating whether it be liver and eyeballs you know things like that the the or certain plants berries things of that nature
0: and that brings me to my next question what do you think is a primary underlying contributing factor to human disease
1: Ooh, that's a good one let me let me give me a second to think on that one how i want to phrase my answer yeah, the prime. If you look at the primary diseases, uh, I'm assuming you are not necessarily meaning infectious diseases, but correct. Okay, so yeah. So if you look at the the top issues facing at least Americans, other parts of the country or other parts of the world may be different, but the heart disease, the diabetes, the fatty liver, those sort of things can be directly tied back to diet and lifestyle. Uh, more so, lifestyle. I saw some interesting studies where they showed, you know, people 150 years ago were pretty much eating the same calorie content as modern people are, but the people 150 years ago were spending their days in hard labor, farming, and, and you know, and industry, you know, building bridges, you know, working, 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 not sitting there, not moving. Very true. Very true. People definitely were a lot yeah. more active.
0: Back in the day. Now, what is the uh, what are the fundamental distinctions between an edible
1: plant and a non edible edible plant? Oh, fundamental. Well, can you get nutrients from it, and what is the toxicity possibilities of the plant? There are a number of plants that will kill you very quickly if you eat it. There are a number of plants that will just sit in your stomach and pass through without giving you any nutritional value. And then from there, it goes up into some that give you some value to some that give quite a good value. So it's more of a continuum from really nutritional to really poisonous rather than one or the other. Are there visual cues that we can
0: distinguish between an edible plant and a poisonous one, for example?
1: Uh, If only it were that easy. That's the number one question I get from new foragers is, is there some quick, easy rule of thumb? There is not. It really requires knowing the plants in your locale and learning which ones are edible and which ones are poisonous. Oh, darn. I thought it was that simple. How many square feet would someone need
0: to be able to live off of edible plants?
1: The problem there is different ecosystems have different amounts of available food. So let's let's go this way. I get a lot of people asking me, or saying, you know, they hate society. What's the one book I should take off with me into the wild and live off the land? And my answer is always, it doesn't matter which book you're going to take. You're going to die. You don't have the knowledge. You don't have the skills and just surviving on plants alone is not going to do it. Partially going back to the calorie issue to get the calories, you need the seeds, the nuts, the tubers, the baby parts of the plant, where the plant has stored up energy for the new plant to use until it can start doing photosynthesis. Those are very seasonal, and it's rare for you to constantly all year round have enough uh, seeds, nuts, and tubers. The one area where you can get the calories would be a pine forest. And for that, I would say a person, depending on how long they're trying to do it, something less than half the size of a football field would probably keep them going indefinitely because the inner bark of the cambium or the, the inner bike of the, the the inner bark of the pine tree, the cambium layer has between 500 and 600 uh, calories per pound. And the pine needles are loaded with vitamin C. So you can literally eat pine needles. uh, It's best to make a tea out of them and extract the water soluble, vitamin C. If uh, you just start eating them, there is a chance, because they are quite hard and somewhat pointy, you risk puncturing an intestine. But if you chop them up, mash them up, and put them in hot water, do not boil them. Vitamin C starts to decompose once you get above 184 degrees Fahrenheit. So for every minute above 184 degrees, you lose 10%. Of the vitamin C. And if you go up to 212 boiling point, you're losing over 20% per minute. So hot water, soak and about 25 grams of the pine needles crushed up, ruptured. You you want to rupture the cell walls so the vitamin C can get out. But about 25 grams of pine needles on average will give you the vitamin C you need for the day. And then the inner bark is the rest of the stuff. And then you you hunt around for wild violets and other things to finish off the other nutrients okay
0: what are the five plants that you can look for in a high desert ecosystem that you can eat ooh
1: so high desert uh the the first thing is look for the areos and the riverbanks and you're looking for the different cacti all cacti fruit is edible but not many of them actually taste good so The ideal ones would be things like prickly pear cactus, where the pads are edible, the flowers are edible, the fruit is edible, the seeds of the fruit is edible. And then sargasso and horse crippler, uh, those are the ones you're looking for. Okay. Now, to put a fork on this
0: subject and move it into a different direction, why do you think that uh, what the food industry has on offer for people to consume is, is primarily only dead food?
1: Why do you think that is? Because shipping and transporting food, well, from the harvest to the person's plate, it's a long process. Uh, A lot of the, even the fruits and vegetables that we are currently having available in grocery stores has been bred for shelf life. The apples, the broccoli, things like that. It has been bred so it looks nice for weeks after harvest so that the consumer will still see it in the store and go, ah, that's nice. I will eat that one. If you remember a few years ago, the the uh, recommended food pyramid allowances or requirements was increased in regards to the plants. A lot of that was due to the same plants, going back to say broccoli, for instance, has been, been grown there in California since World War II, and they have been tracking the nutritional value of these monoculture farmed foods and have seen that the nutritional value has been dropping. So to get the amount of vitamins and minerals and so forth you need, they have been increasing the the amounts that you have to eat each day of these things. Part of that is due to the continuously growing of the plants in these big farms has drained the soil of the micronutrients needed to then produce the nutrients in the foods. They're still putting the nitrogen and the phosphorus fertilizer on there, but eventually all the little micronutrients get sucked up and and removed. So a big part of it then is the food we're eating now isn't as nutritious just because of the growing conditions and breeding of these foods for so long.
0: It seems to be the stream of consciousness for most people nowadays is if it tastes salty, fatty, or uh, sweet, it must be like really, really, really good for you. <laughs> now, now, why is it that people feel the need to eat this stuff?
1: Ah, again, going back to evolution. If you look at the history of humankind, the a lot of it is us doing everything we can to starve off starvation and getting enough calories here in Texas, in the West Texas, in the desert areas, and the dry areas, they had what they called second harvest, which was after eating, say the fruit of the prickly pear, which has a lot of high protein, high calorie seeds in it. Uh, they, the next day they would defecate and let it dry for a week or so, and then go back through their feces and pull out the seeds and reconsume those as a way of trying to get the calories they need. Every culture has figured out that, or every culture that has ready access to fish has figured out if you catch a bunch of fish and put them in a clay pot and set the clay pot in the sun for six weeks or nine weeks, you know, two months, something like that, it decomposes and rots into a fish oil that is very high in calories and relatively safe to eat. So we, have been constantly searching for calories. This has been woven into our DNA that when our tongue, when our stomach, when our brain senses a high calorie food or salt, getting salt was easy for those along the coastal areas, but inland it became more difficult. So the fats and the salts and the calories and things like that triggered the body to say, okay, now eat as much as you can of this because you don't know when you're
0: getting it again. Is it safe to say that the food industry, in a sense, for lack of a better word, really, biohack our uh, our taste buds so we could eat this kind of stuff?
1: Uh, I would say yes. If you think about it, their goal in the end is to sell product. Frankly, sugar, it's almost like cocaine in the brain. And fats, it's almost like cocaine in the brain. The brain says, yes, this. And so if you give that to the consumer... Uh, even though their willpower says, you know, I shouldn't eat much of this, their caveman body says, Oh my God, eat all of this, eat it fast, fast, fast before anyone else gets it.
0: What do you think people should do to kind of avoid that whole, that whole panoply of issues with this kind of food and being away from it? Do you think people should alternatively, uh, food and kind of use that path in a way to get healthier
1: in a way? So part of the issue is still the movement doesn't match the calories. Uh, If you think about all the gym, workout, and all that, that is just people trying to burn the calories, build muscle mass. One of the great things about increasing muscle mass is that muscle requires more calories to survive. So, I would put weightlifting and building muscle mass above a lot of just cardio or bicycling if you're just trying to burn the calories. But the It'd be great if you could rewire your brain to say, don't eat as much of this stuff. And there are things like filling up on zero calorie stuff where you're just too physically full to eat more is definitely the caveman way of kind of suppressing the appetite. But in the end, it's move more. Move more and eat less, I suppose. Yeah. Or eat, fill up on celery and things of that nature, and so you you don't have room for the other stuff. Reminds me
0: of what uh, Kevin Smith—he's a famous director, if you don't know, listeners—of that uh, movie from I believe it's 1993, Clerks. He he did this thing called the Potato Diet, where all he does is he eats potatoes for I don't know like thirty yeah. days. And because he was stuffing his stomach with potatoes, he didn't have enough food for all the all the crappy stuff, and he actually lost like a hundred and fifty pounds, something like that.
1: Yeah, and then you have a lot of fiber and some good mineral contents. Potatoes are surprisingly healthy. You know, it's just a matter of eating enough to fill up, but there are certain things you can do also to Slow down the absorption of the sugars and stuff from the food, prickly pear cactus or okra, any of the slimy foods. The slime actually really likes to bind to sugar. And then instead of having the sugar quickly pass into your bloodstream and spike your sugar content, and then you get all the insulin issues and all that by uh, mixing the slimy foods with high sugar content foods, you Grab onto that sugar, only slowly release it so you get kind of a steady state release of sugar rather than the spike. And then, same thing with potatoes because in your gut, the starch is being broken down into sugars, starch is just a bunch of sugar molecules linked together.
0: So, in the famous scene of where the uh, the protagonist of the movie, Into the Wild, uh, famously Hmm. eats a plant that he thought was edible. And then somehow he realized that it wasn't, in fact, edible. He he dies and he passes away. Uh, you know, really, a lot of this stuff is kind of what nightmares are, are really made of for people. And the reason why a lot of them shy away from foraging their own food because they're not confident in what they're eating. What do you think about that?
1: Okay, let's back up one second, though. Uh, Super Tramp, the guy that's, that starved to death. The foragers professional foragers hate that book into the wild because basically john crackdown in our opinion gotta avoid the legal things there but in our opinion he was wrong in what he's saying about eating those beans um that being said well the the evidence is that uh super tramp Uh, I can't remember his his real name, but he just starved to death. It was, he was ill-prepared for what the, you know, he didn't have the knowledge he needed to survive. That being said, yes, the number one thing that I find with my students is they are afraid they'll, they'll match all the structural features. They'll, they'll, you know, everything looks right, but they're still afraid because they think if they eat the wrong plant, they will die. Um, The basic rule of thumb with plants is you want to match at least five structural features of the plant versus whatever guide you are using. And at that point, nibble a little and you'll be okay. My my biggest part of being a foraging instructor is holding people's hands as they finally try the plants they think they know and show them, yes, you are right. You know this. Now that is very interesting. I
0: didn't know that Tramp from the book Into the Wild was not looked upon very fondly by the foraging community. Turning to a different subject now. Uh what do you what do you think about the act of foraging? Uh, is there is that very important and is that uh, a contributor to uh to a healthy lifestyle?
1: So Uh, besides the nutritional value, and I I touched a little bit about the bending, the stretching, the digging, the carrying here in Texas, if you're out the day foraging, you're probably carrying a gallon, a gallon and a half of water with you, which weighs a lot. So you, you got that going with you too. But beyond that, there's some other neat, uh, mental and physical side effects of letting gathering food be thy medicine. So one of them, it's been shown. That the more time you spend walking on uneven ground, the more uh, or the stronger your brain will be, and the longer this brain strength will remain. So it helps stave off dementia and Alzheimer's and things like that. So the fading brain in old age. Uh, The main reason for this, from what science has determined, it goes back to the amount of stimulation the brain evolved needing. When you're outside, you are using all your senses to interpret the, the environment, at least the cavemen were, because they, there were risks. They had to worry about you know, saber-toothed tigers and other cavemen and things like that. But walking on uneven ground has been shown to really stimulate the brain because you are constantly doing micro-adjustments to keep your balance to avoid slipping, to avoid tripping, to avoid stepping on a sharp rock. So your brain is taking all this information the way it evolved to be. And it's like exercise. It's like doing Sudoku or learning music or learning a new language. It's another form of brain exercise. So that extra, ex, the extra exercise you get from walking around on uneven, slippery, trip-hazard, loose rock sort of ground is actually really good for your brain. Another thing it's really good for is your sense of balance. And one of the things they've showed, a side effect then of the improved sense of balance is you, as you get older, you are less likely to fall and break a hip because you have those recovery mechanisms already hardwired into your muscles. If you're over the age of 70 and you fall and break a hip, that is practically a death sentence. A lot of people just never recover from that. So the extra sense of balance you get from spending your life walking around on hard-to-walk-on surfaces serves to improve your sense of balance. Another thing it does is strengthen the core muscles because that's what you're using to maintain the sense of balance. And by strengthening the core muscles, they can show that directly correlates to overall health. The stronger your core muscles are, the more they've been worked out. tell you you walk around outside on a rocky side of a hill where there's loose rock you know loose rocks and so forth it's like doing a whole bunch of abdominal crunches as you're just trying to keep your balance so all these things pull in you know walking around like we did as a caveman is what we designed to do what we evolved doing and so the benefits from that are numerous
0: it is interesting that I've met rural people who um look like they're older than their age because it's probably lots of work to to live that rural lifestyle and there's some people who look younger than their age in a rural setting why do you think that is What what are the differences
1: most likely and there's you know never discount genetics and you know how much sun are they getting how much water are they drinking there's a lot of ways of doing it wrong and frankly i think that's one of the reasons we evolved, or we developed agriculture, is because it made it easier. It may not have been it made it any healthier, but at least our bellies were full. But if you look at the uh, the hunter gatherers, it if you look at the amount of time they spend per day doing their thing versus agricultural type people, the hunter gatherers actually did have more free time more time to relax but also it's very hard nowadays to live a true hunter-gatherer lifestyle
0: that is pretty interesting um it also seems to me that um if you're a forager you 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 have to coordinate with uh, uh with other people and i
1: assume that that's part of the health benefit uh to foraging They've shown that the more social interactions you have, the more contact you have with other people, be it a bridge group or a bowling club or a church or something like that, the longer and healthier your overall life is. We are designed as social creatures. We are designed to be watching someone's back and having someone watch our back, tribal creatures. That's one of the things that COVID has been so hard on everyone. Uh, I just saw a thing in the news today that the suicide attempts by teenage girls is up 51% during the COVID thing because they are you know separated. We've been put into isolation. If you're a forager in the modern world, one of the things it requires is going out and talking to other people and getting access to other people's land. Most people don't have you know, a half acre or an acre of land that they can constantly be taking stuff all the time. A lot of people live in suburbia, but all my neighbors know that I will keep their yard free of weeds because I'm going to eat them and they just don't put down fire ant poison or any of the other poisons that the suburbanites like to spray on their yards to keep it nice and green. I'll be down around in the evening with my bucket getting the stuff there. So to do that, I have built up great relationships with all my neighbors in a big circle around our house. And through that, there's just a a feeling of food security and life security. Because I know I have friends in the neighborhood. I know I have people. If I need help, I can call them. If they need help, they know they can call me. And there's a lot of security in that feeling. What do
0: you think about using modern technology like these apps where you're able to identify plants by simply uh taking a picture of them do you think that's something that as a forager you can rely
1: on or do you think there are errors in there that might cause problems i would not trust my my life with them i see them as a starting point uh in fact uh this last weekend i downloaded a bunch of them Uh, about once a year i will download them and try them get really frustrated and delete them but the this last time uh, there's like four or five, some mushroom ones, some plant ones, and they actually surprised me in some plants and others, they were still really wrong. So I would say if you are first starting to learn, use them as a possibility, see what the app says, and then look up, you know, let's say a gerrymander. If the plant, if the, I'm not going to name the names, if the ant app says, this is gerrymander, look up, you know, Google gerrymander identification and include the state you happen to be living in and see what comes up. And then from that, start looking up and seeing. okay, so it has opposite alternating leaves. Okay. Yes, I have alternate opposite leaves. Uh, the leaf edge is toothed. Oh wait, no, my teeth or my, my leaves have a smooth edge. So it's not gerrymander, but could it be something along those lines so it's it's a starting point but don't trust it 100 percent don't trust it 50 percent <laughs> yep
0: um i know i know some people have described uh plants and edible plants are as our external digestive system now if that's the case uh do, do the do the nutrients and the type of soil matter and does that make a big difference in the type of nutritional
1: value you can get from these plants Yes, most definitely. One of the things that people have to look out for is, are they eating an edible plant from a toxic environment? I already mentioned here in Houston, the fire ant killer is a big problem. Uh, Some other things that can be in the soil around old buildings, buildings built in the mid-70s and earlier, often were painted with a lead-based paint that flakes off, collects in the soil. One of the things that makes a lot of wild plants so nutritious is they are really good at absorbing stuff from the soil. So if there happens to be lead or pesticides or mercury or anything like that, there's a good chance they're in the plant, which is another reason why you need to talk to the landowner and try and find out, you know, what are potential toxins that may be in the soil. Dr. Vorderbruggen, have you ever walked
0: down the street and randomly picked off plants and eaten them?
1: okay so here in the state of texas it is illegal to take plant material from a piece of property without the property owner's permission and so most sidewalks so i'm going to answer that with a no i have not i've always been doing it on private property i've gone up to many a door knocked on it uh you know and then convinced the homeowner that i'm not crazy it helps that i have a book you know with my name on it for foraging and say hey i noticed you got this in your yard uh can we talk about it for a minute <laughs>
0: Okay, let me rephrase the question. Have you known other people
1: to uh, randomly pick off food and eat it? Yes, yes. And in fact, there's an app called Falling Fruit or Fallen Fruit. Yeah, I think it's Falling Fruit that I believe it's worldwide that tries to hook up people with the food that is going to waste. Uh, fruit trees and public areas and stuff like that. The one issue I have with that app is it doesn't go into the legal side of that and so there had been cases of people getting into trouble because they were you know basically taking fruit from someone's fruit tree that they should not have been doing so and oh and i might just add a number of states that generally had very liberal foraging laws like new york and california are rethinking it because so many people now have discovered the wonderfulness of foraging that a lot of the city parks and state parks are being ripped apart by people taking the plants. Hmm, That's very interesting. Well,
0: uh, Dr. Vorderbruggen, uh, thank you for being on the show. Where can people find out more information
1: about you? So I have two websites. I have the medicinemanplantco.com, and that is where I bring back the ancient plants for modern issues. So that's my medicine man side, medicinemanplantco.com. And then my foragingtexas.com, has over 225 plants currently, posts on each one with big multiple pictures of each plant and identifying and how to use it if there's toxic mimics. A lot of times there'll be side-by-side pictures to tell them apart. All the information you need to become a forager. And even though it says Texas in the title, remember a lot of plants, they show up based on ecosystem, not geographic boundaries. And so many of them are found all across North America. In fact, for each plant, not only do I have a Texas county map, but I have a North American state and Canadian province map for each plant. So you can see is it even in your state.
0: That is very uh, useful information that my listeners should definitely go and check out at www. Do people still say www? Who knows? Let's just do it. Thank you for being on the show, doctor. Thank you.